I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We just sang that together, didn't we? The explicit words of that song. It's always a very powerful and prompting thing when we have the privilege of singing explicit texts of the Word of God, isn't it? It's good for us to be able to come together for the purpose we have tonight to sing these songs of praise and adoration, to build one another up by way of prayer, and also to study a part of the Word of God. I hope that you have your Bible with you, that you and I can study tonight about some things that are impossible. As I entitled that lesson that way, I hoped it would perhaps be a bit encouraging, maybe even captivating as you perhaps wonder what that might be about. So tonight, that which is impossible... Some opening thoughts, though, this introductory set of thoughts on this next slide, I hope will prepare us to look at what will be remainder, following that at least, in the other parts of the lesson. Now, so many times it's true that we as human beings do not accept rather happily the word impossible. If someone tells us something cannot be done... Or if they, in fact, rather carefully suggest that something's impossible, more often than not, the thought that crosses their mind is, well, if you only worked a little harder, or maybe there's an alternate approach, maybe there's an idea you haven't considered yet. Quite frankly, all of that suggests we really don't accept very easily the word impossible. Because you and I know if something's impossible, that literally means it cannot be done under any circumstance, no matter what the particular approach to it might be. The chance of it happening is absolutely zero. And yet the Word of God uses that word impossible a number of times. Tonight I would wish that you would study with me what are some things God says are absolutely impossible things that cannot happen under any circumstance for any reason, prompted by the motivation, of course, of the human family. Let's study some things impossible tonight. You'll notice as we come to the bottom of that slide that I suspect a number of these that you and I discuss, we may actually find them incredibly profound. Let's begin with this one. One of the attributes, one of the characteristics of God is the subject you see on that slide. When you and I think about the greatness of the God whom we serve, the characteristics of Him, and the Word of God lists a number of them. And you and I would be quick to highlight He's almighty, He's perfect, He's a God of love. And that's just, in many ways, the beginning of the listing. As you look at the top of that slide, though, and proceed forward, one of the things we shall discover about Him in a moment has to do with the fact it is impossible for Him to lie. You and I know well that we frequently face the consequences and the difficulties of falsehood, lying, if you please, on the part of the human family. Maybe you and I have often had someone look us straight in the eye and tell us a lie. Maybe they share something with us that they know isn't true, and yet they share it anyway under the pretense that we'll accept that it is true. You and I have been lied to many times. It isn't pleasant, and when we discover, when we find it out, it can sometimes hurt. One of the things you'll notice, though, about lying is the Bible overwhelmingly condemns it, both in the Old and the New Testament. The ninth of the Ten Commandments was, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, Exodus chapter 20. 
But as you look forward with me to some of the later Old Testament books, Zechariah, I suppose, said it as plainly and as absolutely as any other. In Zechariah 8.16, God's admonition to the children of Israel was this, Speak ye every man the truth with his neighbor, lie not one to another. The children of Israel, you see, as they went about their daily walk of life, they too were given to lying, to falsehood. And God, through Zechariah, urged them, challenged them, in fact, demanded of them that they not lie. You'll notice another text, though, takes us to the heart of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul quotes that Zechariah passage nearly verbatim in Ephesians 4.25 and says, Don't lie to one another. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. Now that was written to the church in Ephesus. It was written to a congregation of the body of, of, of the people of God. And they were admonished. In fact, they were directly commanded to be given to the truth. Isn't it interesting in light of that that the book of Revelation closes? And it does so in a very memorable fashion. But one of the things highlighted so swiftly is that among those who will not be allowed entrance into heaven are those who love and make lies. Revelation twenty-two fifteen. Notice with me again, those who love to tell lies and those who participate in them willingly, John, the, the amazing revelator, affirmed that those individuals will not, shall not enter into heaven. Isn't it interesting to see the Bible's condemnation of lying, of that kind of behavior? And yet with it, in a refreshing atmosphere, let us consider God for a moment. The Bible explicitly says He is the God of truth, Deuteronomy 32.4. And not only that, in that text that I would call to your attention, Hebrews 6.18, we have one of the currencies of that word impossible. The Hebrew writer rather carefully and rather overwhelmingly said it is impossible for God to lie. It's not that He chooses not to. It is an absolute impossibility for God to lie. Never under any circumstance, never by any volition, by Himself or otherwise, will He be found guilty of lying. God cannot lie. It doesn't matter how long we wait how long the universe may stand. It doesn't matter what other pretenses or approaches the human family may take. God will never, ever lie. Doesn't that cast a renewed appreciation of this book? If God can't lie, that means this has no falsehood in it anywhere. Either Old or New Testament. No discrepancies, no contradictions, no lies of any former kind. May I again submit to you what a special, special book we have. We can always faithfully rely upon it, have the greatest of confidences within it, and appreciate it for the author who wrote it is such that it is impossible for him to lie. It is with that in mind I would call to your attention a passage that Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 1 verse 2. Near the opening of that little three-chapter book, Paul admonished in the heart of Titus this fact. Speaking of eternal life, it says God has promised it and He cannot lie. So fact is, heaven is a certain thing because God has promised it and He can't lie. And we know that those who will be blessed to inhabit that place are the very ones under description in the Bible and God cannot lie about it. 
Are you sure of heaven? You can have the greatest courage and confidence in it because God can't lie. Aren't you thankful to worship a God who cannot lie? He'll never mislead you. He'll never tell you what's not true. He will never allow you to be deceived by anything He has said directly. He will allow us to make our decisions, of course, and if we deceive ourselves, He'll permit that. But He won't tell us a lie. I'm sure, just as I am, you're very thankful for that. You're very refreshingly buoyed upward by the thought that God cannot lie. As you and I close that slide, though, may I say what a great note of confidence that allows us to have and to live as Christians. What else is impossible? It's not possible for God to lie. second slide takes us to another Bible usage of the word impossible. It's the one that was our lesson text for tonight. Brother Andrew read that a moment ago from Hebrews 11. May I direct your attention to there? It's verse 6 that will capture our discussion for the next few moments. Faith. The Word of God in such careful terms and tones defines faith. It sets it before us and it does so in a beautifully marvelous way. And furthermore, as you and I will notice rather quickly, the Bible not only defines it, but God requires it. Let's ask about salvation for a moment. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now there the inspired writer under the workings of the Holy Spirit used the word impossible. Without faith... It's impossible to please Him. He didn't say it's hard. He didn't say it's challenging or difficult. He says it's impossible. It cannot be done. No matter what other characteristics the person may have, no matter what other attributes he or she may possess, no matter what other traits he or she may have developed, without faith the person can't be saved. Without faith the person cannot please God. Without faith, the person will never know the sweet beauties of heaven. That's a strong statement. Let's develop that in the following way. As the Bible describes the attribute of faith, there are a few statements are at the top of that slide to which I would point your attention. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, We walk by faith and not by sight. That text of Hebrews 11.1, 1, again, with so great care, says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Over the verses that follow then in that chapter is a rather prolific description of faith. What faith is and what it prompts one to do and the way it brings about the characteristics of life. We know what Abraham did and what Noah did and what Sarah did and what Abel did and many others in that chapter. And as they each acted and walked by faith, they allowed the thoroughness and the teachings of God to move them to do what He said to do. And that's what faith was then and it's what faith is now. It's not the case then, is it, that faith is some characteristic that's better felt than told a characteristic that leads one in abstractness and in theological consideration to simply ponder the existence of God. Faith led Abel to do something. Noah to build an ark. 
Abraham, of course, to offer his son or nearly do so on Mount Moriah. And God moved Jacob and all the others to do that which God commanded them to do. Faith was a living thing, and yet without it, one cannot please God. As you reflect upon those attributes of faith, you'll notice the exclusive demand highlighted in that matter in texts like this one. In Romans 6 verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Notice that these in Rome had been overwhelmed in sins of various and sundry sorts, and yet they had obeyed the gospel, and in so doing, their faith was made manifest. And in that manifestation, Romans 10, 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Isn't it amazing then to consider that as you and I appreciate the fact that faith is required, and it is impossible to please God without it. I hope that that highlights within you and me a keen sense of understanding and appreciation relative to, for instance, what we're doing tonight. Many in our world would choose to be elsewhere doing something else, for they see not as significant or vital or important what you and I are currently doing. But yet our faith has led us tonight, because God says to assemble with the saints, and He said to do this for the glorification and praise of Him. We long for times when we can do this, and we thrill at the thought of it, because our faith is strong enough and sufficient enough and motivating enough to bring us to this place at this time. Aren't you thankful for the faith that's developed within yourself as you've allowed the Word of God to work in you? That's what this faith is, isn't it? Two things tonight so far impossible. One, can't please God without faith. And as you and I studied earlier the fact God cannot lie, what else is impossible? What else does the Bible lead us to consider? The third one is this one. Would you reflect with me for a moment on Jesus Christ? This one and the next one are both going to surround Him rather carefully. But the wording of the biblical text is very impressive. Would you consider with me for a moment the sacrifice of Christ? The Son of God, the second member of the Godhead, left the portal of heaven in all of its majesty, in all of its perfection, in all of its glory, John 17, 4, and took upon Himself the form of a human being. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He grew up, of course, in Nazareth under the tutelage of His parents. And when He reached the age of 30, He began a public ministry that to this day has been a great blessing, of course, for the entirety of the human family. And yet, as we reflect on this man, Jesus the Christ, notice what else we can say. During the concourse of that period of time while He lived in the flesh, He never, ever sinned. He made no mistakes spiritually. He made no mistakes by way of actions or deeds or by way of thoughts or motivations. He was perfect in every way. Hebrews 4.15 says, We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. The Master has faced it, and He did so triumphantly. 
As we come closer, though, to thinking about the way the word impossible enters into this, would you consider with me the prayer that our Master uttered as He came to the Garden of Gethsemane? After partaking, or rather after observing that Passover with the group that previous evening, and as He came to the Garden of Gethsemane in a very tension-filled, emotional, weighty set of moments, Jesus separated Himself from Peter, James, and John by a short distance, and He proceeded to pray. And He prayed so earnestly, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. Matthew 26, 39. And as you and I remember, not once, but yea, additional times thereafter, our Savior prayed the same thing. Did you notice again the wording? Oh, my Father, if it be possible. If it be possible. Jesus prayed that the cup might be removed from him. We know well what that cup was. Jesus knew what was going to happen in less than 12 hours. He knew what the difficulties of the next morning were going to bring. He knew what was going to happen as they flogged and scourged him, and he knew what was going to happen as they drove the nails in his body. He knew what would happen when they placed the crown of thorns on his head and pounded it in place. He understood well what was going to take place in terms of the anguish and the agony and the torment to his body. He knew it all. He understood it well. The Old Testament had prophesied it was going to be this way. And our Savior never for a moment attempted to change it. Did you notice though the words of the prayer? If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. May I submit to you, never a person, a being more perfect than he uttered a prayer than that one. Remember, he was sinless. He'd never made a mistake. He was in a perfect harmony with his heavenly Father in every way. And yet he prayed that if there's any other way, let's pursue it. If there's any other means whereby humanity can be saved from sin, let's do it. If there's any other way for human redemption besides I go to the cross tomorrow, let's do it. And we know what happened 12 hours later. There must have been no other way. There must have been no other way. For you and I to be saved, He had to do it. The cup He had to drink. The cross He had to bear. The scourging He had to accept. The crucifixion He had to endure. There was no other way. You and I would be destined for hell if He hadn't done it. The Heavenly Father knew there was no other way. May I say that it would have been impossible for any of us to be saved if He hadn't sacrificed Himself. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, He voluntarily laid down His life that you and I might be saved. What a powerful use of this word impossible. The Lord prayed if it were possible, and it must not have been, for God didn't answer that prayer in the way He prayed it. There was no other way. Doesn't it heighten within us a great deal of love for Jesus, what He did for me and what He did for you? 
About 2,000 years ago, he trudged up that old hill, bearing as much as he could, that cross, and then ultimately they nailed him to it. And he hung there, placed and suspended, if you please, between heaven and earth, as many looked upon him with disdain and scorn, and his mother from a distance weeping, perhaps uncontrollably. And yet he endured those things, sacrificing himself. Doesn't it take us back to a verse like this one? Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Oh, what he suffered. But it would have been impossible to be saved without it. To speak about Jesus in those ways, doesn't it bring us to the bottom to appreciate again, there was no other way. But that alone, perhaps, is only heightened as we consider the next one. For not only is that true about our Master, would you consider with me His blood for a moment? That blood. Blood is such an amazing liquid. It's an amazing substance. It has been specifically tailored by the God of heaven to do the things the body needs. We all know that it interacts amazingly with the lungs to carry oxygen to the body. It carries wastes away from the cells. Blood does so many vital things for the well-being of the cells of the body and for the body itself. But as you and I think about the blood, our interest for the moment is not about those things. It's about something else. Hebrews 9 verse 22 puts it in words like this, Without shedding of blood is no remission. As the inspired Hebrew writer made reflection on the old law of Moses, he highlighted the fact in verse 19 that that old law of Moses too made a careful usage of blood. They sprinkled it around the altar by the command of God. Animals of various sorts and kinds were slaughtered and slain so that their blood could be acquired. And yet as he arrived at that verse, he says, This was the point. Without the shedding of blood, there isn't any remission. The word impossible is going to appear shortly. But you already get a sense that one more time we're going to appreciate something rather notable, something rather amazing. First, what about the blood of those animals? You and I know that for centuries the Jews slaughtered those animals. They, in fact, followed through with that command to sprinkle the blood as God had commanded. And yet, verse number 4 of Hebrews 10 says, It was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Throughout those millennia, as they offer those sacrifices, now the inspired writer makes the point, it wasn't possible that that blood could take sins away. It couldn't be done. Because these are life, these are animals They're not immortal spirits like a human being is. They have not the wherewithal such that their blood would suffice to take sins away. They were, that is, the Jews, supposed to offer those sacrifices because God said so, but it was in light of what He knew was going to happen at Calvary. Because in Hebrews 9, verses 15, 16, and 17... The description is given that that blood of Jesus Christ not only cleanses you and me today, but also it flows to cleanse those who died even before Jesus came to this earth. His blood, you see, also cleanses them. 
It thus would appear that all those sacrifices by animal character that they offered was in light of that beautiful and perfect sacrifice that would one day be given. That blood of Jesus brings us to note this. At this point, what options then exist? If the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, and yet if blood is required for remission, that means there's a very short list of blood that remains. What about human blood? That won't work because we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, so I can't offer a blood sacrifice for myself. My blood is contaminated with sin, and so is yours. It takes sinless blood to do this, and now our options are down to one. Only Jesus. Only His blood. Only His blood. And that blood that He shed, you recall that when that Roman soldier pierced the gentle side of Jesus in John 19.34, and the text says, "...forthwith came forth blood and water." Oh, what salvation is available through that blood. Because that blood, of course, is the sinless one, the blood of the Master who gave His life. And didn't He Himself say in Matthew 26, 28, as He made reference to the fruit of the vine, He says, This cup is the New Testament in My blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now Hebrews 9 had told us without the shedding of blood is no remission, but Jesus just said, My blood makes remission possible. It's not possible any other way. Doesn't that again narrow the considerations? Maybe in the human family there would be some who would think, but maybe if I donate enough money to a religious cause, God will look with favor upon me and save me. That can't work. Remission requires the blood of Christ. Maybe someone else will argue yet a different approach and all others are impossible. It's not that they're difficult or challenging, it's that they cannot be. Isn't that an amazing word again, impossible? You may notice as we come near the close of that, no wonder the Hebrew writer lifts our consideration so high as he describes the blessings available through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 7 and following, the comment is made that, I come to do thy will, O God, He taketh away the first, that He may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And He offered once that, the text quickly informs us. Verse number 12 says that it is by that blood that you and I are made perfect. Aren't you and I so thankful for the blood of Jesus? Again, there's no remission without it. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among them whereby we must be saved. As, we, as you and I have thought about both the sacrifice of Christ and now especially His blood. Again, please notice, salvation is impossible without it. Assemblies like this one where we lift high the thought of Jesus, the beauty of His sacrifice the character of His church, the doctrine that is His gospel. All of it is the centerpiece of our fact that we honor King Jesus, the one who in fact gave His life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. 
Our study about things impossible closes that slide. In Hebrews 9, 28, by noting, He shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. As far as things impossible. Let's look at this one as well. In Hebrews chapter 6, there's another passage, and I would invite you to look upon it because there's a very interesting usage of the word impossible. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse number 4 in just a moment. Let me preface this by saying that throughout the ages, there have been a number of interesting questions surrounding what is true about a person who does become a person that's saved? One who has his or her sins forgiven. Can he or she ever be lost again? And if so, how then does the person come back to God? It is into that context the following statement appears. Verse number 4 reads, For it is impossible... For those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. There the word impossible occurred, and upon a rather cursory reading, one may perhaps hear in that something like this. Well, there doesn't it expressly say that one who has become a Christian and then falls away, verse 6, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That sounds like it teaches that once a Christian apostatizes and falls away from the faith, that it's never possible again for that person to be saved. Is that what that teaches? Is that a correct appreciation of what, what the inspired writer said? Again, it almost sounds like that might be possible if one reads it, but may I quickly say, that's not what it teaches. That's not what it teaches. Let's develop that in the following way, please. This passage describes Hebrew Christians, individuals who, of course, had come out of, in many cases, a very strong Jewish background. They had become members of the church, but under the persecution and the duress that, faith, that they faced in that ancient Roman Empire, many of them were strongly tempted to leave Jesus and go back to that way of life they formerly had known, to go back to a way of life for which they had no persecution. People didn't persecute Jews. People didn't persecute those that were, let's say, without religion. So they'd leave Jesus or were tempted to do so and go back to a system where I didn't have this kind of persecution. Well, that is a background. Notice again the assertion. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. So notice, these folks had been saved. They were partakers of the heavenly gift. They had tasted the wonderful Word of God. And it says, they were once enlightened. They had accepted Jesus as the Son of God, and as such, they'd been baptized into Christ. Next verse, tasted the good Word of God. They, to the point of experiencing that beautiful set of blessings of the gospel, Lead us to note verse number 6. If they shall fall away 
to renew them again into repentance. May I ask you to notice the tense of the verb fall away. In essence, he says, if they leave Jesus and stay in that kind of life, you turn from Jesus and continue to live apart from Him in open rebellion to Him. Then he says, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, they can't be saved like that. And none of us would question that. As we've stated earlier tonight, only in Christ, if they leave Jesus and are unwilling to come back to Him, they can't be saved. It's impossible to put them again in a saved condition. In fact, as you continue reading that, the thrust is, notice verse number 9, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. The entire premise of the Hebrew letter is a reminder and encouragement to them to remain faithful to the Master under all circumstances. And to those who had already apostatized, back in chapter 3, He cordially invited them to come back to the loving side of their Master. This text in Hebrews 6 does not teach that if a Christian falls away, he or she can never come back to the faith. It's an assertion that if they fall away and stay in that style of life, living in rebellion to the gospel which they once had loved, and they proceed to disobey it for the continuance, then yes, they're lost and they'll never be able to be saved then. It is impossible to save them in that state. Oh, how we need to maintain tenderness within our heart. And when we find ourselves distant from God, to rush back at once to His side and don't remain wallowing in that very distant and sorrowful place. As we close that particular slide, so many passages in the Bible, in fact, urged those who had fallen away to come back to Jesus. Didn't Simon do it in Acts chapter 8? He himself had not been baptized much earlier, and yet he failed, and yet he tenderly proceeded under the admonition of Peter to approach God again. We know this text in Hebrews 6 does not teach that under all circumstances it's impossible for a wayward child of God to be returning to faith. And by the way, aren't we all thankful for that? Over the last few weeks, we have seen the tenderness of many lives as they have made response in desiring to be again made right with God. And we're so thankful that the Word of God makes that abundantly possible. Tonight, many things are impossible. May I again say, it's not that they're just difficult. It's not that they're just simply hard. They cannot be done. Let's close our lesson with one more and then the conclusion. Having to do with the resurrection of Jesus, we noted earlier tonight about His crucifixion and about the shedding of His blood. But would you notice something interesting? In Acts 2.24, Peter makes a rather amazing statement on the day of Pentecost. He says, it's not possible that Jesus would not be raised. They buried the body of Jesus and they perhaps seemingly were very secure in the fact that they were finally done with this man. But yet, Peter so boldly said, the bars of death couldn't hold him. It was not possible that God would not raise him up. On that Sunday morning, our blessed Savior came forth, giving every one of us the confidence and the assurance that one day too, no matter how many years it may have been that our 
body has, of course, been laying in the bosom of earth, we too will be raised. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. John 5, verses 28 and following. Things impossible? Yes, indeed. There are some things that simply cannot happen. They're impossible. God cannot lie. It's impossible for Him, for him to do so. And as you and I learned, one cannot be saved without faith. It's impossible. Thirdly, Jesus prayed if it was possible that the cup might pass from Him, but the cup didn't pass from Him, leading us to deduce the fact it was impossible for us to be saved otherwise. The blood of Christ, it was impossible for there to be remission of sins without that blood. You and I have noted most recently, Hebrews chapter 6, Oh, how we must always turn to Jesus, for only there. Do we have salvation? It's impossible to be retur to return to salvation without it. And finally, the resurrection of Jesus. This evening, it might be that each of us have been reminded that some things are impossible. If there be anybody in the audience tonight who is such that your life at this point is not right with God. The God of heaven has made, of course, all the things necessary for you to be right with Him. Your sins can be forgiven. You have to simply submit to His terms. If we could assist anyone in that way tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. The gospel plan of salvation, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized, and upon so doing, then live faithfully until death. If there's someone here who has reached the point of being wayward, the focus of life is not as it ought to be. The choices you've made are not in keeping with the Word of God. The decisions you've made have borne rather poor reflection on the nature of Jesus. You don't have to stay in that condition. It is possible for you to come back to your first love, and we'd be honored to pray to God for you. You must repent of those sins and confess them, and the God of heaven has promised to hear the penitent prayers of faithful brethren. And isn't it true, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Tonight, if there'd be anyone with a desire to respond, we would invite you to come and even do so now while together we stand and while we sing.